Well, it's very, uh, yes, there, there doesn't need to be widespread election fraud. Any political scientist can explain this. There's really six counties in America. You don't have to steal the United States. You don't need to steal across the United States. You need to steal like crazy in six counties. And these six counties are Las Vegas, which is Clark County, Phoenix, Maricopa County, Milwaukee, Detroit, Philly, Atlanta. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you just steal in those six places, those are the anchor cities of six swing states. So if you steal the anchor city, you flip the swing state, which flips the Electoral College, which flips the national election. So in summary, to steal the United States, you don't need to steal across the United States. You need to steal in six, six locations. And that will, through the magic of the Electoral College system, that flips the whole country. It is Monday, and it is the 15th of March, 2021, and this is the Create Your Own Life Show. Hey, what is up, everybody? Jeremy here, and I'm very excited for today's episode because I actually just finished uh, today's guest's book, and he's a former winner of Entrepreneur of the Year former CEO of Overstock.com. He operates an opinion and news site called DeepCapture.com, and he's the author of the book we're going to talk about today called The Deep Rig, How Election Fraud Cost Donald J. Trump the White House by a Man Who Did Not Vote for Him. Welcome to the Create Your Own Life show, Patrick Byrne. Jeremy, great to be on. Thank you. Patrick, I, I really appreciate you taking out some time for me today. I know, you know how busy you have been with everything you've had going on, so I just appreciate your time today. It's an honor to be on with you, Jeremy. Thanks. Really so uh, I, I had heard your interview um, not too long ago with Mike Dillard, um, and you really had kind of before a lot of this got as much play as it's gotten recently had kind of discussed that. And I guess first off, you know, this has really mattered to you, but you didn't vote for Donald Trump. And I'm, I'm curious, like with so much success in business and everything going on and, you know, being a busy guy, why did this matter so much to you not voting for Trump? Oh, because this is not about Mr. Trump at all. This is about, you know, the core concept of our intellectual tradition is consent of the governed. Just government derives its power from consent of the governed. Remember that old chestnut from seventh grade? <laughs> well, how do you determine what, the what it is to which we, the governed, consent? We hold elections that are free, fair, and transparent. By abrogating that part of the deal, by, I mean, they are, we have all kinds of freedoms have been eroded, it seems to me, over the last 40 years. But the most fundamental freedom is that we're, you know, the way uh, you, you can divide governments are into authoritarian or governments that understand their power derives from our consent. Mm -hmm. Well, so if, if, that's the, if that's the side we're on, we cannot accept. We, you know, we've kind of compromised, it seems to me, on a lot of liberties, but we cannot accept the erosion of our, of our consent, of having elections that are free, fair, and transparent. And, and I think it's interesting because I think if, if we don't 
continue to hold governments accountable. You know, like even Athenian democracy eventually spiraled out of control, um, you know, with the tyrants of Athens and things like that. So I think it is up to us to hold our elected officials accountable. Correct. And you know, when the Athenian democracy, there's an interesting lesson in this. It had a 68 year period of stability and actually spiraled out of control a number of times, but had the longest period of stability Athens enjoyed was when they changed their constitution where they picked their elect their legislators by sortition. It's not a word used much anymore. You know what sortition is? Um, I'm an ancient history major, but you got me on that one. <laughs> the only, way, only thing we use it for now is jury selection. Mm -hmm. The idea that we're going to randomly select jurors and you're going to sit on a jury. Well, that's what they did with their legislatures for one 68-year period. It was the most stable period in Athenian democracy. And why that was is very instructive. It's because there's no corruption. Mm -hmm. There's no capture. There's no point in special interest putting the time in to go and, and, and get a congressman and, and wine and dine them and catch them because they're just getting turned over randomly every two or three years. And Athenian, there were 25,000 citizens. I think 500 were chosen randomly to serve staggered one or two year terms or something. So there was no way for the special, they, they had all the same problems we did with special interests and corruption and, and demagoguery and all that. But they, uh, they uh, discovered that when you did that and, so, and selected like we do our, our jurors, and you turn over Congress, you get a better Congress, you get a better, better legislature because there's no no way anyone can go and, and buy anyone off because he just mm -hmm. keeps turning over. Well, that's that's why. Um, and, and that's why personally, like, I think that, you know, in, in the world of Congress and the Senate and everything else, like, yes, term limits, but that doesn't fix everything. It comes down to actually putting their assets in a blind trust for the period of time that they serve because then they can't touch their money. <laughs> I think it'd be better, actually, if we tried, if we uh, if we went if we went to this, if we selected Congress by picking names out of a phone book, if we select the House of Representatives that way and then you had the. What was the amendment? We used to have hundred up until 110 years ago, the state uh, senators were chosen by state legislators and they represented the interests of the states and the House represented the interests of the people. I think that was probably a well-designed system and should go back to it, except the House shouldn't be elected at all. It should just be randomly selected like we choose our jurors, pay them well and give them a lot of public honor. So people, when you take two years out of your career to go serve in the House, I think that would actually fix fix things. But anyway, I digress. So well, go ahead. Well, no, I, I, I want to because uh, I know we are limited on time. So I want to bring us um, back to, to deep rig. And I guess, you know, this is an issue that's really mattered to you. It is a really important issue, you know, right now in the history of our country. And I guess like looking at that, why, why did you decide it was time to write this down? Because I know you were a big part of the battle, but why did you feel the need to document it? Well, I, I felt an obligation to because I felt history and the country needed to know the truth and they needed to know it as soon as possible before other forces went to work and create and created whatever their socially engineered history was. I was going to sit and write exactly the truth. This is exactly what happened in those meetings and the decision before all the bullshit machine went to work. So that's why I wanted to get it done within a couple of weeks of the fight being over. From, from that perspective, one of the things that really surprised me is, um, you know, like we, we keep hearing about it in the news, you know, no widespread election fraud. There's no widespread election fraud. They keep using this idea of widespread. But the thing you, you break down in your book 
is you say it actually comes down to to six states, but more realistically, just six cities. Um, you know, I, I guess why was it? Why was that the strategy, and why was you know that what was focused on? Well, it's very uh, yes. There there doesn't need to be widespread election fraud. Any political scientist can explain this. There's really six counties in America. You don't have to steal the United States. You don't need to steal across the United States. You need to steal like crazy in six counties. And these six counties are Las Vegas, which is Clark County, Phoenix, Maricopa County, Milwaukee, Detroit, Philly, Atlanta. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you just steal in those six places, those are the anchor cities of six swing states. So if you steal the anchor city, you flip the swing state, which flips the electoral college, which flips the national election. So in summary, to steal the United States, you don't need to steal across the United States. You need to steal in six, six locations. And that will, through the magic of the electoral college system, that flips the whole country. And those six locations are, what do you know? Surprise, surprise. On the evening of November 3rd, we had this unprecedented event. I've never heard of people stopping their vote counting in America. We don't, never heard of that. But vote counting stopped in six cities in America on the night of November 3rd. Just stopped. No, mm -hmm. not really any good explanations. And those six cities were Las Vegas, Phoenix, Milwaukee, Detroit, Philly, and Atlanta. How odd. What an odd coincidence. Well, it's not a coincidence. It happened, of course, because part of the the rigging, and this happened in other countries, that the rigging, when they rig the election, they if it's bad enough, they actually have to shut down the vote counting for three hours and do certain things. So mm. it's not a coincidence that the six cities that any political scientist can tell you are the six cities that if you if you cheat like crazy there, it were it ripples through the system and flips the whole nation national vote. Those six cities were exactly the places that had these weird things. Like in Atlanta, a water pipe burst forced them to evacuate the state a farm. AKA an overflowing urinal. <laughs> but the night it happened, it was that it was allegedly a water pipe that had burst, and we have to empty the State Farm Arena in downtown Atlanta. It was so dangerous. And they got everyone out of the building for three hours. And when they bring them back in, well, what do you know? Joe Biden's vote suddenly exploded 500,000 votes. Ooh, a lot. Well, that thing happened in six cities. It's almost like an insult to my intelligence, frankly. Mm -hmm. And so when people say, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? To even say that, they have to look past some known facts that are headline events from the night of November 3rd. Anyone with, ha with a room temperature IQ could, should be able to look at this constellation of facts. There are six cities that have this special property. They are Democratic stronghold, anchor cities of swing states. And what do you know, on election night, those six places shut down for three hours. That should really be tipping, you know, that smells like skunk in a very big way to me. And then when you start digging into why they shut down and what happened when they were shut down, the pattern becomes very clear. That's where they, that's the main point where they rigged the election. So, so I guess from that standpoint, you know, um, you know, you, you were you were talking about how some of the servers connected and stuff like that, and you had traced some of the IPs and whatnot. But I guess like looking at it, like what actually happened in that time period there when they were shut down, like like what occurred that that changed everything. Well, there's a number of different le levels to this. Uh, there's retail, wholesale, and industrial. Mm -hmm. And at the retail level, we're talking about 
you know, dead people voting, a dead guy voting. At the wholesale level, you're talking, you know, you're talking about uh, systems where they created where, say, all kinds of, you know, hundreds or even a couple thousand dead people vote in certain states. But at the wholesale level, we're talking about the possible injection of tens or much more, even more likely hundreds of thousands of votes into each of these areas. And then when you get even really, the truth is there's very strong evidence at this point that there was international vote flipping. So which go, which probably approaches 3 million votes. But let's just start with, yeah, let's just, and I mean, really good. I'm now a believer in, and this, this is in, in the book. I threw some information in the book about, about this. We've been keeping it out of the, I'm letting this work through the official processes, but I now am a strong believer that there's been international, very strong international involvement in this. But let me give you an example of the kind of things that went on. In Nevada, if you entered, if you went to the Secretary of State re website and registered to vote, all your information was sent to Pakistan to a company called CavTech, which is a corporation in Pakistan that does cyber stuff, but it's very much associated with Pakistani intelligence, which is called Pakistani, Pakistan ISI. And all your, so why were they taking our voter rolls? It was very important for live voter rolls to be held overseas because what they are doing is, so when they get to the point, see, there's also shaving between candidates. Mm -hmm. And I think that all these techniques were used and Donald Trump, and I say this not as a Trump guy, I think all these techniques were used and, uh, and Trump was still winning. And that's mm. what Sydney means when she says they, he broke the algorithm. He was still winning, which is why they had to do the thing where they shut down. And then they do things like this. They'll take a bunch of blank votes and slip it into the machine. Now, as those votes go through, the machine needs to know. It needs to check. You can't just do it with blank votes. It needs to check off that each one is associated with a actual legitimate voter. Well, we believe the systems were actually going online in real time, going to Pakistan or wherever and checking who has not voted yet. OK, Joe Blow. OK, check that off. We'll attribute this to Joe Blow. OK, who's the next one? Here's the next blank. So as they're feeding in a stack of 50 ball blank ballots running through the machine, maybe 50 counterfeit blank ballots running through the machine, the machine's going online to check overseas. So we're seeing mm. that kind of weird packet traffic between these machines and overseas connections in the middle of, of just processing votes. So there's all kinds of funky stuff that needs to be explored, uh, really inappropriate stuff. And these are machines that aren't even allegedly connected to the internet. So that's, that's an example. There's international, there's that kind of stuff internationally. It looks like there's man in the middle attacks internationally where they're getting, they're getting between two computers that are talking to each other and the computer, in, they, they inject themselves the hacker does, and then they can kind of imitate each side and they're a man in the middle and they alter the conversation between computers. There's all kinds of hacking techniques that are manifested in what we've come across, as well as all the normal stuff, you know, as all, uh, as well as counterfeit ballots in, in uh, Georgia, as well as, I mean, there, there's this, it's, it's like there's a cocktail of techniques and the cocktail was mixed differently in each state. That's another important mm. thing to know. Mixed differently based on local conditions and what you could get away with. But it was mixed, there's a cocktail of techniques of these different levels and they all show up in those six states in different proportions. 
Well, well, one of the things that, that really surprised me that you, you described in the book is, is you talked about the legal teams working on this. And, and I know even like just from an observer, not really, you know, knowing the back end information until I read it in the book. But, you know, I always felt very comfortable with seeing what Sydney Powell was doing and seeing her on Lou Dobbs and things like that. She just seemed very competent at what she was doing. Um, and you mentioned kind of, you know, the, the incompetence with, with Rudy's team. And I'm, I'm curious, why do you feel that, you know, the president continued to, you know, work with Rudy's team when yourself and, and Sydney and General Flynn had a clear path to victory for him? Well, and I go through this in the book, and I don't mean to slam Rudy. I, you know, Rudy's a great American. No, he's been a great American. It just seems like this was, you know, it's, at this point in his life, it may not have been the right case for him. It was not the right case. It was an extremely complex case. They did not understand initially how cyber this case was going to be. So now you're talking about a 76-year-old man running a very complex case, and then the complex case starts having a bunch of cyber aspects to it. Well, this is... I'm not sure this is a fellow who knows how to do his own email. I'm not sure of that. He just was not the man in, for the job, although I love him dearly, and I'm sure I've hurt his feelings. I know I have by saying this. He absolutely was not the man. It was, it's absurd. And, you know, that was an unforced error on Donald Trump's part. I think that what happened was often is the case as people get old. You'll know this someday, Jeremy, and you'll, you'll be once you're out of your teens, you look like <laughs> hey, I'm in my mid thirties, man. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there must be a picture in your attic somewhere, a portrait in your attic growing old. You look like you're. Yeah, right yeah. Now. I'm Dorian Gray, man. That's right. <laughs> well, I, uh, I, he, uh, people get older and they lose friends, and they get to be seventy four. Uh, nice coffee cup there, by the way. Nice. My my Oscar Wilde cup. <laughs> Speaking of Dorian Gray. Exactly. <laughs> I, uh, so he, so people get old and they kind of hang on to their friends through things that they shouldn't. And he, and I think that Rudy was not the man for the job and he should have been advising the president, but he should not. And the president has trouble. He's really, a, I don't want to say a softy. I had I had came away with a very different feeling about him after spending four hours than I'd had. That really just surprised me in your description of the book because I think we get the idea of you know he's this big bravado, big tough guy, you know, uh, you're fired type of person. No, 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 he's really quite not at all like that. I wish he'd been like that. He'd still be president if he were still like that. There were people he should have fired on the spot in the four hours I was there. Terrible support from his people. Uh, in Rudy's case. I would never include Rudy, accuse Rudy of anything disingenuous, but there were people around him that were so bad, as I make clear in the book, that we, everybody who interacted with that team that I knew and talked to privately came away saying, I mean, everybody came away saying that that's so bad, we suspect certain people are actually working for the opposition, working for trying to keep it derailed. Not Rudy himself, but some of the people on the team were so disruptive. And it's, it, you know, maybe they're just that. They're former government employees, and maybe you can get away with being that kind of a person in government service. I don't, I don't believe so. The government people, I'm a libertarian, so I'm supposed to always be bashing government people. I've actually had more than my fair share of experience interacting with government people. And I've actually been generally very, generally quite surprised. 
you don't really have duds. I normally discuss, I normally think you don't have duds in government. You get corporate America, sometimes there are good duds that hang. I haven't met duds in government until maybe one in 20 people I made in mm-hmm. government. I think, ooh, this, this person is a dud. But boy, then in the course of this whole event, these last few months, there were some people involved who were so bad, we all, all of us were wondering, is this person actually trying to derail things? And I was even surprised as well because you, you you talked about you know um, you know the team pushed and pushed and pushed and finally Trump made the verbal agreement of you know hey I name Sidney Powell uh, special counsel and I also give her the security clearance she, she needs for that and then Mark Meadows seemed to just block the whole situation. Mark Meadows and I think Rudy, we saw them walk out together at twelve thirty out of the White House. We walked east, they walked west. Meadows and Rudy together. And by the next morning, the whole thing, by the next morning and over the next few days, the whole thing got derailed. It was, it was Mark Meadows and Rudy. Well, Mm. it was everybody, Pat Cipollone, the general counsel of the White House. They all were terrified of Sidney and Mike. They were terrified. And the competence, I have to say, the competence. So I'm an entrepreneur and I'm always sort of meeting. And I don't, I was shocked at how good Mike Flynn is. Mike Flynn could be an entrepreneur could walk into any bit. He's a real leader and manager, and he's terrific. And I had never met him before September. Very strong, capable, executive kind of guy. Uh, He could have had this. We had this so well organized. We had a war room with, you know, by state, exactly what was done. We had it all broken out. We had it so organized. And then when I dealt with people on the government side who were trying to unscramble this and figure out what to do like the people around the president it was like fifth grade it was like going from grad school to fifth grade the difference between a three-star general from intelligence and what he had unscrambled and how he had things organized for how to proceed versus what a bunch of you know lawyers government lawyer types staff guys and law you know it was a joke and and yet i couldn't get the president I even whispered to him a couple of times, if you could only see what Mike and Sydney have planned, how they have this organized, how we could do this and that. And he just, he, he literally, we had this soft sort of a side conversation twice. And he just kept telling me, no, it's got to be Rudy. It's got to be Rudy. Well, Rudy was no, it was like giving the invasion of Normandy to a lawyer. This very complex set of tasks had to be done. That's not something a lawyer manages. That's something a three-star general manages. So it was really an unforced error on Donald Trump's part, I think. And I think that all comes from he's very, it's, a, it's not a character flaw, but he's overly loyal to his friends. Mm-hmm. He's a man of and, his generation. And, and from that standpoint, you know, like uh, with even some of the, the cases that Rudy was taking up, like this wasn't going to be a short-term case. This was going to be a long-term case no matter what, fighting it. And, um, you know, you mentioned the idea, uh, you compare compare – um, you know, President Biden to the idea of of Barry Bonds with the asterisk in um, you know the record book because yes, he is president because the clock ran out. And and I guess from that standpoint, would they have ever beat the clock using the strategy they were using? Not, you know, not not Rudy's. Rudy's strategy was really twofold: fighting through the courts, and secondly, dealing with the slate, which was never you know that's a five year proposition. The other is going to the state state legislatures and getting them to look at the data and recommit their electoral votes. Well, he might have had a chance of getting that done if he'd had 
you know, they actually, I believe that when uh, January 6th came, if I'm not mistaken, weren't five out of six of the states at least considering recommitting their electoral votes? Well, I think several states were had actually sent electors, but they weren't allowed. They weren't allowed to to actually report. It was part of the problem. Yeah, it got well. What they really needed, what Pence needed to do, was show a little bit of manliness and take, say, we're going to suspend this meeting for one week. I'm giving one week to everybody go home to the states. All the states study all the data that they have, and and by one week from now, recommit your electoral votes to who you really believe. That would have been an arguably a small insult to the Constitution. We still would have had our new president selected. You know, by January 20th, a new, uh, the president would have been sworn in, whoever it was. That would have been a small insult to the Constitution. I think that would be a much smaller insult to the Constitution than taking an election that 47% of the citizens doubt and cramming it down their throats and telling them they're terrorists if they question it, that's an insult to the Constitution too. Yeah. I think my solution would have been a much smaller, in fact, it wouldn't have been an insult to the Constitution. It would have violated some 1880s law about the elections, but uh, that's the difference between businessmen and lawyers. Yeah. We always have to, nothing's perfect to a businessman. You always have to no, not at all. make trade-offs and stuff. With lawyers, you know, they look things up in books and they don't know how to get anything done. So to me, as an entrepreneur, the obvious solution was to uh, to get, well, there were solutions that there were a number of, of paths that would have gotten us to a January 20th swearing on, of a president in whom we would all have had confidence that it had been fair. And now I hear that it's actually going up. The percentage of people in America who now have doubts about the election is actually creeping up. Did you know that? I, I have seen that. Um, and and I, I think, honestly, like there's two parts to that is they've, they've seen how the current president has performed. And they've also, you know, that's more and more keeps coming out. Like, I think it was, um, you know, as we're recording this, it was yesterday that Maricopa County was supposed to finally start looking at their votes. So they shredded the votes the day before. It's like, whoa, oh, that's yeah. kind of weird. Well, they not only do they shred. Well, they Maricopa County election has been fighting teeth, toes and fingernails against you know, against having to show anything. Now, when they ask for the money to get these machines, all these election boards say, oh, these machines give total transparency. We never have to worry about anything. Everything has a paper ballot, total transparency. Well, let's hold them to it. We're now saying to Atlanta, the people are saying to Atlanta, to Phoenix, okay, let's look at, we, we want to open up those boxes. We want to look at the paper. And they are fighting like crazy to prevent it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Arizona, the Senate, Senate Judiciary subpoenaed them. They fought the subpoena. They lost. The subpoena went through. They refused to oblige. It went to a court. The court said, you have to follow it. And then they sent, you know, they, they just have been fighting it like crazy. And then last week, they sent a very mysterious message where they said they sent to the Senate a message that said basically, OK, you won. OK, we'll send them over. And the Senate immediately sent back a letter and said, wait, 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 don't break, you know, you can't break chain of custody. We didn't say just send them over in a truck. Well, the next, but my guess is what the Senate, what we're going to find is the Arizona Election Board is, we will learn that they broke the seals on the ballots and they would say, oh, oh, we thought that we all agreed we would just send it over or something like that. And that'll be their excuse for why they broke the seal. And then two days later, they found 
enormous bags of shredded 2020 ballots in their trash. And one member of the Maricona, this is hilarious, the Maricopa County Election Board, who lives out on a farm outside of Phoenix, had a big fire and the fire got out of control that night and the fire trucks came. So the same day that they're breaking the seals on the ballots and then some ballots are showing up shredded and trash, one of the election board guys has a fire get out of control in his barn. What's that wow. add up? <laughs> What's yeah, exactly. That? Well, Patrick, let me let me let me ask you here because I know we only had till the top of the hour. How are you doing on time? Because I had a few more things I wanted to ask you. I've got about fifteen minutes if you do, but I don't. Okay, wanna... good. That's perfect. That's perfect. I don't want to waste your time, but I do have a few more things I want to ask you. And you you mentioned so you mentioned the paper ballots and the voting machines, and you know one of the things that that's been in the news a lot recently are the the um, you know massive lawsuits that Dominion Voting has filed against. Um, I believe one against Sidney Powell and one also against uh, Rudy Giuliani. You know, based on you know a lot of the evidence you're presenting, how are they able to even do that? Like, how are they able to do that if their their software is doing you know what you explain in the book? Well, it's all don't blame this all on the software and Dominion. Although I think that that all has to. This is a lot more than about Dominion voting machines. And people use the phrase hacked. You can use it to mean broadly just to sort of cheat a process. We're not talking about the machines themselves necessarily have people have gotten in on the software and done things that that that's maybe one layer of a whole stack of ways this election got hacked. Um, so I don't think anything of those lawsuits. I think they're a joke. I think they're going to so do you think they'll get dismissed then? Well, they'll get this. I mean, some of the things they don't have any personal jurisdiction over over Sydney in New York or in, mm -hmm. these in most of the places they're suing, they have no jurisdiction. They will be able to be, be defeated on uh, procedural grounds. I think it's mostly for the press that they did it. I think they're going to get their ass handed to them when they get in discovery because, you know, you go in. I'm surprised they didn't sue me. I or not to litigation is a core competency for me. Uh, I took on Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley or somebody 15 years ago, spent $30 million. Fuck them. I'll, uh, <laughs> you know, of course, core commerce, bring it on. Where's my, you know, call collect. But they haven't sued me. I'm surprised at that. Uh, I, there's nothing to their lawsuits. A, because they're true. You know, mm -hmm. the first defense, you have to prove to win a libel suit that somebody said something that was false. They knew it was false. They did it with malice. All kind, well, they can't get over the first hurdle. This isn't false. And in the act of giving depositions, they're going to be destroyed. They yeah. can't. We're going to have, I mean, Sydney's going to have Eric Kumar. There are there are there are Dominion employees who took leaves of absence and went up and effectively ran the voting, the voting oper tabulation operation in Detroit and Atlanta. So the, Sydney's salivating at the thought of getting these guys under deposition. So I think it's mostly a PR stunt that they're saying they're doing this and they're going to be they're going to be destroyed. They've got no chance. They're yeah. certainly not going to win. And my guess, my guess is, my guess is they did it as PR and think once the new administration is in, this new administration in one way or another is going to take care of all of Dominion's problem. Well, and that's and that's the, the the next question I had for you on that. Like you mentioned, you know, your two hypotheses towards the end of the book of of you know kind of the reasoning a lot of this happened. And um, I know um, HR one, which has been being discussed now is kind of seems to me like almost like, hey, we did all this stuff. It wasn't legal at the time, but now it's going to be legal in the future. Um, I guess based on, you know, you know, number one, how dangerous is HR one to, you know, our voting? And number two, like, how does that fit in with your hypothesis? 
Well, my hypothesis that I finished the book, it, well, clearly, uh, hypothesis one is this was all a psyop. This whole 2020 was a psyop of which the, the, last, the, the, the last two steps are the crisis of a rigged election and then normalization. Um, and that a, that a deep state is behind it. And I, but secondly, and if that's true, you're going to find, and then secondly, the stronger hypothesis, the deep state is doing this in conjunction with China because China's fingerprints are all over this. Well, if that's true, I point out, you're going to see, you know, if the left knows that they rigged this, if they rigged this and they know it, they know that they're not going to win future elections. So they have to lock in the rig and how they're going to do that is going to change the laws and they're going to change the electorate. And they're going to change the laws to take all this goofy COVID emergency rules about voting, like absentee, unlimited absentee and ballot harvesting and all this and institutionalize it. And the second thing they're going to do is change the electorate with changing the immigration rules. And to the, to the extent Biden does those things, I think it's confirming the theory that they rigged this and they know that they have to change everything in order to lock in their rig. From from that standpoint, um, and, and I couldn't really figure out, I guess, where in our conversation to ask this, but I looking at, you know, kind of the media with all this, the thing that's been surprising to me is you even look at like, you know, for me, I, I was a Fox News viewer at the time, which I, I am not anymore. And it seemed like they were so excited to continue like calling states for Biden at the time. Like, where does kind of the media complicity, com complicity fall with all this? Well, it, I, to me, it's great because they're showing their slip. They're showing their it's probably an expression even too old for a guy. You're, they're showing their their true colors that that anyone who thought we had a free and independent media has got to have been disabused of that notion in the last uh, uh, few months. It's kind of ridiculous. It really happened in September. In September, something happened with Fox, like a switch was flipped. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they, you couldn't, they weren't honest anymore. Now there's some people there, Tucker, I have great respect for Tucker Carlson. He's a good essayist and Maria Bartiromo are honest. And uh, who's the woman who had me on a year ago? Uh, who's the one? Martha McCallum. Yeah. Uh, but even then they all sort of got weak need and they all got weak need and some limits were put on them, I think, and they couldn't. So I don't know what's happened at Fox. Murdoch's kids took over, you know, uh, in the summer and they're quite lefty. And one of their wives, they're kind of New York socialite guys and their wives are. And such. So it's important to people like that, you know, that they walk when they go into the Carnegie, when they go into the Carnegie Hall, that everybody stands and applauds or something. So they care about stuff like that. And the mm -hmm. wives in particular, in my experience. And so it's. So, yeah, Fox became, other than a, the people I just mentioned, it became kind of unwatchable. Hannity is still out there. There's a few big personalities who's too big for them to control, but the other ones are kind of towing the line. From that standpoint, then, the, the, the final two things I have for you, Patrick, um, you know, the first being, like, his, you know, history. How will history view, you know, what happened in, in 2020? And, you know, not, I guess not just the election, because, the, as you said, there was a whole bunch of things that happened at once. Well, it could view it as the American Republic had a history, 1776 to 2021. And that may well be, two, what is that, 245 years? Yeah. And that may be, yeah, that may be how history views it. Or history may view it that 
there was an attempted or temporary coup in America that in America, the United States, you know, we said all these years that we're exceptional. Now's the chance, you know, you got the, like that old joke goes, you got the distinguished flying cross, go out and do some distinguished flying. Mm-hmm. You know, for years, we've been saying that this is the exceptional country. What happened here has happened in dozens of countries around the world. And most of them never emerge. Mm-hmm. They have emerged decades later, like in the Eastern Bloc. They just, uh, they never, they never emerge. Well, if America is the exceptional country, then we have something in our DNA that is going to make it possible that this does not stick here. Mm-hmm. And there are different ways that can happen. The most important thing is to get in, as I'm telling people, get involved in your local election, the mechanics of the election, your election board, run for the board, volunteer to work in the 2022 election, especially if you work in a swing, if you live in a swing state and not, don't do the four hour training so you can go and observe, do what the lefties do, go and take two days, do the training so you can work in the precinct and then work in the precincts. And I know that there's a group called Bikers for Trump. I wish they were just called Bikers for America because it's not about (laughs) Trump. Right. This is about, and I wish these bikers would go and get that training and all of them go to work in these precincts. Because, you know, you've seen the movies where these goons, you've seen where the goons come out and they just try to intimidate these observers and they, they get away with anything they want. There need to be some Republicans who man up and get that training and go, not because they want to fight, but they're going to go work in the precincts and make none of this, make sure none of this stuff happens in 2022. And we might get, there's a 50-50 chance that if we do that, we can, if in 2022, there's a fair election, I think we're going to take the House, the Senate, we'll stop all this goon stuff, and then it'll be time to restore the American Republic because the American people have seen now, have had a taste of what the goon left has in store for us just in the last month. We've, we yeah. see what the goon left has in store and Americans are, don't want it. Uh, but we have at best one chance in less than in, in 20 months from now. And we have to be involved in the election mechanics. Well, Patrick, you actually answered my, you answered my second question for me. So, so thank you for that. And that was kind of, you know, what can we do from that standpoint? So I really, really appreciate you taking out some, some time today. I know how busy you are. Um, you know, once again, for the people listening, um, the book is The Deep Rig, How Election Fraud Cost Donald J. Trump the White House by a man who did not vote for him. Um, our guest today has been the author, Patrick Byrne. Patrick, where can we find the book? Where can we find out more about you? Deep Rig, go to uh, Deep Rig Patrick Byrne, Google that. You can find it on about 20 websites, including Amazon, where it has jumped into the top 20 wow. books in America. Even though they're suppressing the title, they're making it so you can't find the title. But if you go on Google, you can Patrick Byrne, the Deep Rig. And uh, you can, my website is deepcapture.com, where I explore corruption in the United States. Deepcapture.com. Very cool. And Patrick Byrne, thank you so much for joining me on the Create Your Own Life show today. Jeremy, thanks for having me on, sir.